This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. It's my pleasure to introduce our speakers for this event. Andrew Liepman is a senior policy analyst at RAND. After a career of more than 30 years at the CIA, he retired as the principal deputy director of the National Counterterrorism Center in 2012. Andy spent much of his career on Middle East and terrorism issues. He was the deputy chief of the CIA's Office of Near East and South Asian Analysis, the deputy director of the Office of Weapons Intelligence, Arms Control, and Nonproliferation, and the chief of the Office of Iraq Analysis. Howard Gordon is an award-winning television writer, producer, and author. He co-created the breakout series Homeland, which is one of the biggest hits in Showtime's history. Howard was the showrunner and executive producer of the television series 24, which received the Golden Globe and the Emmy Award for Best Drama Series. Howard is also the executive producer for Tyrant on FX and Legends on TNT. Well, thanks, and I'd like to add my thanks to you all and, and to Howard. We were just trying to decide whose idea this was, and I think we both realized... Neither of us could decide it was Dahlia's. It was Dahlia's yes. idea, right. <laughs> no, we, we met over dinner a couple of months ago and uh, discovered that you know, we both concentrated on terrorism for a long time, but from very different perspectives, and, and actually thought it would be fun to explore those two perspectives um, for, for Rand. I did I, Before I start asking you questions, I wanted to tell a very short story about of the intersection of TV and, and real life that I experienced a, a few years ago. I was, as Dahlia said, the, the deputy director of the National Counterterrorism Center, which was created after 9-11 to sort of help the federal government communicate a little bit better internally. And at the time, the, the secretary of, of Homeland Security was Chertoff. My boss was Mike Leiter, who eventually became a trustee at RAND as well, and they were both huge fans of 24. So um, <laughs> they found was, out that the cast and crew were coming We set the Washington. show season seven in Washington. Right. right. So they found that, and, and so they arranged for the cast and crew to come to, to my facility. And they, they came after a long day of shooting. It was in the evening. I told my staff, you know, the cast and, and crew are coming. No one should feel compelled to stay, you know, it might be fun. And of course, you know, and we were gonna meet the, the crew in the lobby and I, I went down to the lobby at 7.15 or whenever the, the bus was supposed to come and it was standing room only. I mean, no one went home. <laughs> they all wanted to meet the, the 24 cast. And, and the, the bus came and everyone came off the bus. Um, Kiefer wasn't there, but a, a bunch of the cast and all of the crew were there, and I looked out at, at these people who were coming into my building, and they had the same sense of excitement on their face as my employees did to meet, to meet the, the stars. And I realized we both thought each other was really cool. <laughs> and um, we, we sort of, as they came in, we realized that one of the real differences between TV and real life is they're really good looking and we're not. Um, and tall and thin and 
And, and, but it was, a, it was a great evening. And you, you got I remember here. I wasn't there, but I remember hearing about it. It was, it was terrific. And it was, I think there was, now, I don't know if this has just become lore, but I remember our production designer either said, your place looked like our set or our place looked like your set. I don't know whether right. art imitated life or life imitated art, but something inspired, one of us inspired the other. I don't remember which. Well, I, I don't know if it's true, <clears throat> but our operations center, which was the first place we took you guys to, right. was designed by Disney. And it was supposed to be was it really? pretty cool and, oh. and, and sort of edgy and lots of screens and, and open space. And it looked like sort of a New York warehouse. And it, was, it was pretty neat. So that was, it was a great evening. But, you know, I got into terrorism because if you were in intelligence in Washington in 2001, that's sort of what you did. And I, I'm, I'm curious. You know, most of your shows have a, a strong terrorism angle now, I, I suspect before 2001, less so. And I, I wonder if you could tell the story of how you ended up focused on terrorism in the Middle East. Well, if you were doing t uh, intelligence in Washington in 2001, it was natural then that you would migrate toward this, you know, locus of interest. And not dissimilar, we happened to be doing a show called 24. Weeks that, that, that we were shooting the third episode, I think, when 9-11 happened. And, the, and so we, it was a, an unhappy accident in some ways for the show, uh, a, a happy one. Because, uh, you know, uh, after that happened... Everyone thought, well, the show was going to be canceled. There's, the audience will want comedies, blue sky shows, and it will be a rounding error on the Nielsen box, and we'll just run the first few episodes and probably cancel it. As it turned out, the opposite happened, that people were acutely interested in this story. Uh, and so was I. I mean, you know, it changed everything. The show would have been, I think, vastly different had 9-11 had, had not happened. So it became the prism through which I think the audience viewed the show. and you know, the one through which we, we, we uh, wrote it. You know, it's interesting. We're, we're going to celebrate the 14th anniversary after 9-11, and you would have thought that in those 14 years that the country's focus, its, you know, its, its sort of fixation on terrorism would have declined, but it really hasn't. You know, I, I think we in, in CIA had a saying that every day was September 12th, that to focus our people on terrorism to make sure that they remained you know, dedicated and on the job, you know, there was a sense of urgency. Uh, to some extent, that comes from the, the media attention to, to terrorism and to the threat. I, I worry sometimes, and I, I think one of my challenges was making sure we didn't, we weren't too alarmist, that we didn't spin up the fear mongering. Yeah, yeah. That we didn't do fear mongering. And I mean, your business is more sort of. Uh, entertainment than education, and you're not going to have a lot of uh, a lot of people watching your show if it's not sort of action fast. Right. You you worry a little bit that I mean that fixation on terrorism that you. Well, uh, I'll tell you, I, I can I, you know jump jump start the question. And pardon me, I, I've I, I'm losing a battle to a cold, so if I'm uh, so I pardon pardon my voice. Um, Alex and I, I and I spent nine years on Twenty Four. I, I, I often say I mortgaged my 40s to that show. And, uh, and it was a night, you know, to quote James Joyce, a nightmare from which I could not awaken. And so I was kind of, what am I doing another show about terrorism? Uh, or, and it's not about terrorism. I really, and, and, and we thought, Alex and I thought to ourselves, is the audience as tired as we are of this? Is there, some, is there terrorism fatigue? And that was the genesis really of Carrie Matheson. Mm -hmm. What if there was somebody 
who, again, as we, you know, uh, added and, and developed her character, became this, became a woman, became one who was of a certain age, became bipolar, and, uh, and took an outsized responsibility for what happened, came of age as a child during 9-11 uh, uh, or as a young adult, and, and um, was kind of like Chicken Little. That was our template. What about somebody who, who, the, uh, the, who you know, the country had grown tired of this, of, of being afraid. Nothing had happened on the homeland. And was she crazy, insistent, um, uh, self-involved, uh, or was she right? And so, and it was an interesting. And so, it really was a nice. It was an interesting dramatic premise, and one that we that and we were interested in certain questions that were very very different from questions we asked after, you know, twenty four. Like, what do we need to be afraid of? What um, do we still need to be afraid? How afraid do we need? What's the price as as Americans that we're going to pay for that uh, for our fear and for our security? Which I think are the mm -hmm. same things that you guys traffic in Absolutely. in real. I'm looking at the title, going, like, "How accurate is?" I should be interviewing you because I, it's backward. <laughs> well, the, well, a couple of the differences are that, fortunately, when you had the truck bomb go outside of the CIA headquarters, I wasn't there. <laughs> and, you know, I was, I was not such a fan of the show for a few weeks after you killed off most of my colleagues. Although, ironically, we thought it was okay when you nuked L.A. Because yes. I was... It, and, we, you know, and, and during 24, we had like a great relationship with the Pentagon and, 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 and they and the military loved us. And we could, you know, yeah. I don't know if this is, I don't know if I should be saying this if this is being recorded, but we got a lot of cooperation. It was great. If we needed repelling, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, seals out of a, a you know, tomahawk or whatever, or whatever, whatever they would repel out of, we got them. Or F-16 <laughs> screaming down the L.A. River. It was great. On, 20, on, on Homeland, you have a Marine who's turned. It was like, yeah. I mean, really, what happened to all that love we got? You know, was, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's, it's also interesting how times have changed a lot. I mean, in 24, you know, the, the, the plot sort of surrounded this ticking time bomb. Right. And, and it, I think you, interv you were interviewed once uh, 10 years ago or so, 2006 or 2007. And you said, you know, you did have some concerns that that ticking time bomb atmosphere might harden the public to extreme measures. That, you know, the ends were justified, the, the means were justified the, the end. And, and I, I wonder, this was almost 10 years ago. Now the Senate reports out on terrorism. I think the public has a very different view of these extreme measures, maybe less tolerance. I mean, I, I wonder if you'd have a different view now of, of that sort of controversy than you did in 24. That, that's sort of the evolution from 24 to Homeland. Yeah. Um, well, you know, you know I, I, Joel Cerno and Bob Cochran created the show, again, before, well before 9-11. And Jack Bauer was an action hero, not unlike, you know, I don't know Bruce Willis, Sly Stallone, Clint Eastwood, who, you know, who go do whatever it takes to, to get uh, what they need to get. Uh, and Jack did this a lot of the same, and, and the idea of real time. I guess it, the, the whole idea of real time is at once kind of this wonderfully Aristotelian unity idea where nothing is as dramatic as real time. I think Aristotle said, but nothing is as absurd as telling a story as 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 complex as twenty four was in twenty four hours. How coincidentally great that it began <laughs> and ended in exactly twenty four hours. So the sort of intensely real thing was also intensely unreal by definition, and made it very compel you know compelling. And and I think uh, um, 
gave us a lot of the narrative fuel. Now, we no one really took us to task for anything in those first four years. Uh, uh, no one blinked. Jack did some pretty extreme things, and that was one of the delights that we had as writers and the audience had as, as, um, as um, viewers. And I think part of that, too, was a wish fulfillment that we had. We wanted somebody who was going to cut through, you know, catch the bad guys. I think someone who also... Uh, had as much impatience with bad guys as they did with the you know impotent and incompetent and corrupt bureaucrats who were their bosses. So everybody, it was Jack. It was a very I was not uniquely. One of those. You were not one of those. No. You were. Well, Jack used to be called Andy, but we thought Jack was a little <laughs> little more. You know. Did he always uh, have that great hair? <laughs> he did. He did. Um. But in, but I was saying so. What happened is even the show, you know, the real world unfortunately encroached on uh, on on our show. I can't believe that. But, uh, you know, uh, after Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib and after, you know, two wars that were going less well, the cast of the show, you know, became a lot darker and more co complex. And so I think people, you know, we became kind of a Rorschach test in many ways for, the, you know, the so-called war on terror mm. and its conduct. And <clears throat> well, that, You know, it's an interesting time is one of the big differences between your world and mine. And I think you think about Zero Dark Thirty, you know, the, the operation to bring Bin Laden down took, right. in, in the movies, a couple hours. And it was all exciting from beginning to end. There was not a, a boring moment. But in real life, it was uh, seven years of, you know, putting pieces of a puzzle together, of, of running down rat holes that ended up, all of them empty, except the one that ended up with Bin Laden in it. So it took patience and dedication and, you know, it, I once did an interview when NCTC, my organization, the National Counterterrorism, stood up. We had a, a press thing, and, and I forget, NBC came. And I shooed all the analysts away and, because they, didn't, they shouldn't be on TV. And we walked through the, the cubicles, and, and the, the journalist said, what would this look like if there were people here? And I said, it would look like computers with people behind them. <laughs> It's, you know, intelligence isn't a spectator sport. It's not fun to watch like, like movies. And, and it, you couldn't sell a TV show of a bunch of analysts staring at the screen, you know, uh, connecting well, we, the dots. Chloe, Chloe. Yeah, Chloe yeah, yeah was, that's uh, true. Was, but uh, um, so we made, uh, hopefully we, we, we sexed that up a little bit or made it funny. Chloe was actually Chloe one was of the She came yeah, to uh, yes. NCTC. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Well, well, but if a drama, I would say drama, though, by definition, you have to, I mean, you have to compress stuff. I mean, on L.A. law, I mean, you'd ask a lawyer, yeah. when do you get a case that morning and that afternoon, you know, bring it to Guilty. trial? Yeah. You're right. It's like... <laughs> right. Um, I did want to explore a little bit. You know, one of the really contentious issues today is how we treat Islam. I mean, the president just had a summit at the White House where he was really quite harshly criticized for, for not saying the thing we're fighting right now is Islamic violence. And he refused. He called it just extremism. And I, I, mean, I have a sense that he's right, partially because so many of our own Muslim population in the United States and all of our allies came in and said, don't label this as Islamic terrorism. The way you um, deal with Islam in, in Homeland is really pretty complicated and sophisticated, nuanced. I mean, in some ways, all of the terrorists are Muslim. So, you know, you've been criticized for, for Stereotyping Muslims. On the other hand, you know, you also also portray it as a religion of peace and 
Brody takes a lot of solace out of it. I wonder how much planning and thought and how do you how do you think about religion as you portray it on TV? Yeah, it's very it's a very thorny issue, clearly. And 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 you know, um, when we started the show, I'm sorry, back, now back on 24, the incident that really kind of opened my eyes to an extent about how potentially incendiary what we were doing was was um, uh, we had a family living in Gore or wherever they were living of of, of a Muslim family who were a family of terrorists, or at least two of the three members, the, the husband and wife were, I don't think the kid, oh, the kid was involved too and had a change of heart. And I remember, on, and on the 405, unbeknownst to us, there was a big giant like lit up billboard saying they could be next door. And we were contacted by, I think, MPAC and, and by CARE, the Muslim Public Affairs Council and the Council on Islamic, uh, American Islamic Relations, about, hey, this is like, we're afraid we're, we live here. This, is, uh, this has uh, implications for our lives here. And it was, really, it was uh, something that really made us think about it. And it began a conversation. So I started engaging, particularly with MPAC, on this very subject, which is to say, you know, it's not a question of balancing. You know, a good, you know it's very reductive to say mm-hmm. good Muslims and bad Muslims. And, of course, we did that in some ways by populating CTU with, uh, with people who are fighting violent extremism. But it's um it's very hard. It's a very you know the, the Swedish terrorists or you know the, uh, were were less uh, less convincing because of the world we live in, and I think it's very it's just a very thorny thing. And it's one that any I guess the point is at the very least as with torture as with um you know it was something that made us open our eyes and be aware anyway that this show has an impact. And it's really you know uh, as a creator your 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 first uh, job is to tell an exciting, emotional, engaging story, compelling story. But you, there's a certain responsibility that comes with it, and you need to be accountable to yourself. I think, and what it did for me, anyway, was and and you know, was really started a process by which I started, you know, uh, talking to groups and and realizing that we have this responsibility. So I watched uh, 60 Minutes once with Man- Andy, Andy Patent, yeah, yeah. yeah, and uh, he was pretty interesting. He's an interesting, cat. thoughtful yeah. um, guy, and they were talking about the portrayal of Islamic terrorists and the, sort of the government gone a little bit crazy, sort of up to the edge and then over. And he said, you know, in his, he didn't create the show or I don't, right, right. I don't know what his involvement was, but he said essentially it, it becomes very difficult to tell the good guys from the bad guys. In one episode, it's pretty clear that Al-Qaeda is the bad guy, but the next show you have the government doing something so... Loathsome. Yeah, well, I think that was, I mean, Alex and I really had a very, very, this premise that there's a, a guy who was a, a American soldier who's come back and has been turned and not making it the Manchurian candidate or make it, you know, some mind control or brainwashing, which is, I think, the obvious and really unconvincing and counterfeit way to have done it. And what really sort of unlocked it for us was this idea that while he was there in captivity, he, uh, he uh, tutored Abu Nazir who was his, his, his captor uh, um, and uh, tutored his son, developed a bond, a very human bond, and that an American drone strike killed a bunch of, those, a bunch of kids, and that that strike was then uh, uh, denied by the vice president, who was every bit the villain, not so much in terms of, really because of his lack of accountability and his, and his deceit and his dissembling. So that was like a, a golden moment for us inter- narratively, that really described that there, you know, there is, you know, I don't think Abu Nazir wakes up every day and says I'm a bad guy. He thinks I'm a good mm-hmm. guy. And how do you, how do you uh, um, create characters and love them all? 
I mean, really know that they're all coming from a certain place. Because I think that's what, I think as a writer, you really try not to sort of answer the questions. Uh, that's propaganda. I mean, d d saying something that uh, it isn't entirely, the world is very complex, even, and this is particularly complex. And I think you want to ask the questions and not answer them. Otherwise, it is reductive and I think less interesting. Right. I mean, I think what, what brings people back, especially to Homeland, is really not knowing is that shaky ground that all the characters, all of them, whether it's Carrie who's bipolar or Wynn who's a little bit uh, a, bit on edge, a yeah, yeah. little little bit on edge, <laughs> I would say. <clears throat> uh, one last question before we go to the audience. But in my job, my audience was pretty limited. I mean, you could say that I I was producing crafting product for one guy, which was the president. It's really not as simple as that. We had the Congress and, and the cabinet, but essentially if we wrote something and the president thought it was valuable, we win. I mean, that all of our ratings go through the roof. So it, it's a pretty easy, but yet we had to be really careful because we, I mean, the president is a pretty alluring audience. Mm. You get sucked into that, the power of, of the White House, and you have to be really careful. I mean, we have a saying, you know, telling truth to powers of our job. And you don't want to tell the president what he wants to hear. You want to tell him what he needs he, to right. hear. And you're playing to a very different audience. You have uh, reviewers who come out the next day in the New York Times and the LA Times. Uh, you have the audience and the network and ratings. I mean, to what extent, you're, you have a vision sort of of an arc of the show, whether it's 24 or Homeland, and then you get all of this feedback, whether it's from the people who are paying for it or the audience. How do you, have you ever had to make important sacrifices to how you wanted the show to proceed? Uh, I don't, I, the answer is no. The short answer is no. I think ultimately you have to get it, develop a very thick skin. And I've, again, along the way, have offended sort of everyone. I love being mm -hmm. called an apologist and a, I mean, I've, I mean, the, if the right and the left right. Co and both co-opt you, if Barbara Streisand and Rush Limbaugh can, can, can both watch the show and love <laughs> it, you've done something right. Uh, and, and, uh, well, and you've had Bill Clinton and, and George Bush and President Obama all sort of yeah. fans of, yeah. of the show. So you have, in that respect, certainly succeeded. Yes. You know, I, I, I do remember at one point, my job was to be, I was the head of the Iraq analytic unit. We, we were talking, you were in Iraq mm. in 2008 when it was nice. Right. I was in Iraq in between 2003 and five when it was nice. really bad. And I, I used to joke with people that it was my job. My job description was piss off the president every day. <laughs> and I did because every day we told him a story about Iraq that was, was pretty negative. Um, and, I think you have obviously more artistic license than I did. It would have made my job easier. Well, is there? But you know, I, you know, and I'm curious if there's an analog in in, in, uh, in what you did. But uh, uh, Secretary Chertoff at the time said what he liked about the show, and of course, it's an absurd 24, particularly absurd because right. of the, the real time. But he said it dramatized at some level that there were no good answers, just the lesser of two bad, you know, uh, answers. And so, was did you have to? Um, uh, deliver the news with, uh, I mean, did, you know, again, when you're taking notes on a script, you go, right. I really like what you're trying to do. And then you're waiting for the but. Did you ever have to say, um, um, like, we're doing this, like the, the food's great at the, in the green zone, yeah, yeah. but uh, the, food's, the, the food's improved. Right. However, the country is going to hell in a handbasket, but they just opened Pizza Hut. 
<laughs> so we're um, we have to be pretty careful about that because, particularly, and you know, President, if you're president, you don't want you want things to go okay. You want progress, and and you know, we were trying so hard in Iraq to make progress to pacify the Sunni areas. There's a little bit of deja vu here, um, and and it really wasn't going very well. So we had to be pretty careful about not giving him sort of that enticing positive, right? So that that you you might focus on and ignore the the bulk of of what was going. You were the messenger. Going wrong. We we were the messenger and. We understood that, and and we had a lot of support, so it wasn't like someone was beating on me every day. So I, you know, I, I've had the opportunity to ask Howard all the questions. Um, why don't we open it to the floor and see if you all have have any questions of either of us, if you like? Um, in reporting to the president, did your team ever consider and qualify what you're reporting? How important it was for an outcome for the American public? I think we were acutely aware that what we were involved in was life and death. I mean, there were hundreds of thousands of American soldiers um, in Iraq at the time. The casualty rates were pretty high. And, and, you know, we felt a great sense of responsibility that we needed to tell the president the truth. Um, we were not in a position to say, to dictate to him what the policy should be. We all had sort of our views. That was the other the other thing that I think we had a sense that we couldn't only ever tell him what's going wrong. We also had this to make suggestions. You know, if here's a road, if you if you go down this, if you try something different, maybe this is how you get the Sunnis in Iraq on on board. But every day was we had a sense of responsibility, and I, I think I mean to some extent you have that same responsibility when you're portraying terrorism and and really critical events on TV. It's not like it's only entertainment. Yeah, well, we're we're perpetually in a, in a dance with reality, uh, and we're on. Um, and you know, another thing reminded me of uh, we were visited by the dean of, of West Point, uh, General. I can't remember his name, who happened to be a twenty four fan, but said a lot of our interrogators in the field in Iraq and Afghanistan are taking a page from Jack Bauer, and which, and I said, well, General, is that, is that is that my problem or yours? I mean, are you training? Uh, you know, uh, the, the, I assume the very narrow bandwidth of of so, of, of interrogators who are conflating. Re- reality and uh, with um, a television show may be a deeper problem. But nonetheless, I didn't, wasn't that disrespectful because I said, you know, of course you understand there's some, in, uh, there's, uh, media is powerful. It is also our greatest export. I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in what the stories we tell and that artists uh, do have a, uh, an opportunity to humanize um, each other and each other's stories in a world that is really building walls and, and creating fear. So artists do, I think, have an opportunity to change the game a little bit. And that, you know, you make a really good point because you, you make a mistake if you think the audience is only the American people or, or Washington, but it's international and you're filming all over the world now. And well, the, the gal- there, there was a thing, there's a, a book called What a Million and a Half, a Billion and a Half Muslims Really Think. And uh, da- uh, Dahlia, um, I can't remember, um, I can't, I'm mispronouncing her name. But she, but she basically, not this Dahlia, but she said, uh, they, I guess she, they, Gallup conducted polls and said, uh, are, do, uh, uh, do you like American, America? Don't like the government, but like Americans. The follow-up question was, have, well, have you met any Americans? The answer was no. Well, then how, how come you like Americans? And the answer was friends. You know, they watch uh. the TV show. <laughs> and, 
you know, I mean, to think that there's not this, you know, again, it's not propaganda, friends. It's a, a reflection of who we are as a country. And, and I think there's no greater sort of uh, export in some ways of, you know. Absolutely, I agree. We've got another question here on your right. Um, question is, do you think about the um, your your program's effect on the young men and women who are now being radicalized? Your programs are no longer, or some of them are past, some are still to come. And do you think about what kind of an effect that will have, and does that impact what you write? Um, to give you an example, I'm 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 doing a, a new show. For, well, it's the second season, but a show on FX called Tyrant, and then on another show, Legends, and and one, and obviously and Homeland. And in each of those stories, there are stories of young people being radicalized. So we're we're we're, we're those uh, that story, that idea, which I think is something that I think all of us are uh, is a question that we ask ourselves: How can this happen? How does this happen? Why does it happen? And it's astounding because trying to sort of animate that and dramatize it is remarkably challenging because it is so foreign from our context. And so, uh, and I will tell you, it's just dramatically, it's been a challenge to write. It's been a challenge to imagine. But it's nothing that we're like, again, I, 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 I the job of writer is to feel empathy, is to feel I'm empty, to understand what drives, what circumstances make someone, someone do that. And I've read all, as, as much as I read it, it's really been hard to write it. And I don't know yet how these, how this is going to come out. And, and it's a it's a really tough analytic question in real life. And it, we study what what goes on in someone's brain that could prompt them to conduct mass murder. What what went through Major Hassan's mind when he went to Fort Hood and killed thirteen of his fellow soldiers? And it's there's it's just a very complicated psychological, social, religious, um, economic sometimes. And it's, it's a, it's a really and our friends. I, it's interesting because you know the constituency. I, I, a friend of mine, you know, who, who's the executive director of of MPAC, you know, uh, who has a a a, a great voice, uh, Salam Al Mariati, who's you know who, who's engaging with law enforcement and with young people. At the same time, he has the uh, the you know the it's a double edged sword where he's actually being accused of being a, uh, a collaborator or a, a, you know whatever you want to call it. A, the, the, it's a challenge too for many uh, American Muslims who are identifying and, and uh, take that leadership responsibility. I want to ask you something about the sense of responsibility. When you talk about portrayal of terrorism, and I think you both represent two different points. One is you come out of the governmental side, and that would translate into the news side, and the briefing of the U.S. government and other governments and things like that, and then down to the people. And you come out of taking information and using it to make it entertainment as well as education in a way. So it seems to me that you both have a sense of responsibility. I would say yours is even stronger because you're really the informant from your research. And how do you tackle that? How do you handle that and get that out to the public? Because we haven't mentioned ISIS once here tonight, but that's a huge force, and it's going to grow and become even bigger. We might have an attack on our soil. There may have been an attempted one just the other day, but it probably, if we have one, it would be worse. And 
how do you handle it? It seems to me that you have an enormous sense of responsibility on your shoulders. And that's my question to you. How do you look at it and how do you handle it? And how do you prepare us? And what do you put in as your counter suggestions to the president? First of all, I think that you might you separate what I did from Howard does and from the news. I mean, I think the news, unfortunately, is sometimes some combination of entertainment and, and analysis because they need to attract audiences as well. And I think sometimes the 24-7 news cycle really drives things perhaps more than it should. Um, I think in, in my case, I always sought a sense of balance. It was too easy always to ring the alarm bell and to raise the red flag and to say they're coming over the transom, the threat is overwhelming. The, the, the challenge for us was to give the president and his staff information on which they could make better decisions. And sometimes those decisions were, you need to take out that terrorist. But sometimes, you know, it, it wasn't. So a, a sense of balance was critical in, in my line of work. Immediately after 9-11, I think we lost that balance because we all sort of panicked. I mean, I think everyone expected more attacks in another wave. There was just the sense in the country that we were vulnerable. And I think over time we realized you know, we set up a very good set of defenses. Uh, we were on the offense, and we've actually made the country pretty safe. I tend to agree with you that at some point, ISIS is going to attack. They're going to try and, and get into the United States. They'll either you know, um, get someone to come or, or radicalize someone. But you know, we all also need a sense of balance. You know, it's not a, an existential threat. It is, it is frightening, and we have a lot of people doing everything they can to stop it. But you know, it, it needs to be in balance. Hi, I'm wondering if your if you ever feel that your creativity is thwarted by you were talking about your contact and communication with MPAC because yesterday, for example, I was on a conference call with Department of Homeland Security and Justice and Muslims from around the country who are very fearful because of what happened in Texas. So when things like that happen, or with your conversations, do you feel somehow that your creative spirit is affected in any way by what you know the Muslim community is feeling or experiencing due to various circumstances. Yeah, I mean, um, well, again, the, the most the most excruciating example was that was after twenty four, you know, a year after nine eleven, when no one wants to be the midwife to Islamophobia, no one wants to sort of be the uh, you know exacerbate the, that fear that all of us at some incipient level feel, and so yeah, but you find that line between being responsible and also trying to animate, again, that's why I say the challenge of creating these characters who are radicalized and trying to imagine what goes into it, what, why they may be susceptible or vulnerable. But yeah, I, I mean, the answer is yes. You try, you, 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 I am responsible. We feel responsible, and I think we probably curb some choices that might be pulpy or salacious, but also incendiary. And we self-police. We've not been, to the great credit, I mean, we're not censored, and we're given maybe more license than we, we should have. I'm happy to report. Does it worry you, or should it worry you, that most of what people think they know or understand is fiction? You mentioned that a lot of foreign people's view of Americans 
is from friends, fiction. Yes. Most people's understanding or think of what they understand about terrorism and the, the fight you're fighting is based on fiction, not reality, but fiction. And I'm wondering if that is, is or should be a concern. Sure. And, uh, you know, I, I came from a, a pretty shadowy world where our, we limited our interaction with the general public, certainly with journalists. You know, it, on occasion, I would go down to Congress and give a, an unclassified presentation on the threat. On occasion, we would give background interviews with journalists. But I think, um, and I think they're opening more and more so that the government can give its version of the facts. Uh, you'll see Director Clapper, the, the head of the directorate of, of the National Intelligence, go down to, to Capitol Hill. He doesn't like to do it, but to give a laydown of, here's my view of really what the threat of the threat is. Um, the problem with that is you can't control what people believe. So they're hearing the, the amount of information we have available is overwhelming. It's good, some good information, some really bad information, and you know it all gets jumbled up and people will believe what they believe. So even presented with facts does not guarantee that someone will have a, a perfect appreciation of the world. And, I, and I'd say that uh, you know, I hope that our job in terms of responsibility or accountability is, again, is animating points of views that make you think about things that then you can consume other content like the news. And if you, you, know, you can watch the show and sort of understand what characters who are populating the world, whether they're counterterrorism experts or radicalized youth or ISIS um, you know, people or soldiers or, or – or, um, you know, sort of everybody in this in this in this drama that that we're that uh, who are who are engaged in this story, uh, we're telling uh, our imagined version of it. But I think it's only effective if it reflects something that those real people are experiencing, and that's why I think the show is as popular as it is, or the shows have been popular uh, uh, with soldiers, with intelligence operatives, yeah. with presidents, and because they see something about the the reality of what they're experiencing in their real world. Uh, positions. We were we were talking about this before, and there's <clears throat> there's a fine line between being too real. I mean, if you try and hew too closely with what real life is, a it's boring, and <laughs> b your characters will be not very good looking, and <laughs> it'll take a long time for the story to develop. So you have to have a, a yeah. very right balanced. I'm sorry. Well, so picking up on that uh, and your topic sentence, the, the most recent season of Homeland. How realistic or how plausible? What you had everything from Saul getting kidnapped in a big airport to Carrie seducing that student to a very morally ambiguous swap at the end. Uh, you know how, as, as as someone who knows what it's really like, was that realistic, accurate? In join a yeah. hand, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at Andrew. <laughs> is, is well, I never did that. <laughs> I, you know, I think I think the. The reality is that all of Howard's characters are sort of deeply flawed, but pretty sympathetic, particularly in Homeland. I mean, Saul is constantly like checking his moral compass, and is this the right thing? Carrie, not so much. Quinn, never. Um, but there's a sympathetic side to all of them. I, you know, I think Carrie, we, we were chatting about this, 
Um, Carrie's imperfect enough, and I think she, you guys have talked to our folks to sort of shape her character. I mean, I, I think there are some aspects that are made for TV. They're not real life. But, you know, I think the reason why Homeland is pretty addictive for people in those positions, more so, I think, maybe than any other show I know of that's on, on, on the espionage business. I mean, most shows that are about spying, you're not going to catch a bunch of spies watching. But Homeland, partially because it was real enough that they could see themselves in it, but it was entertaining enough that they could say, okay, that didn't happen. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting because Alex and I, are the very think about the very premise of it, which we, notwithstanding the you know the uh, the potential of terrorism fatigue, we, we we feared ourselves was it's a story the CIA our CIA agent is operating on U.S. soil, right. and some I mean the whole the whole premise is against the very <clears throat> charter, right. uh, and so we and so when we sort of went like this to our friend in the CIA, please read it, don't hate us, <laughs> yeah. and don't hate that dinner you had with us. She said she really lo loved it. Right. So I was, we were stunned at the response. And we don't know whether they're just keeping, sort of keep your friends close and your enemies closer. I don't know whether that's going on here, but. Come talk to us again, Howard. Yeah. No, there, there's, there's all, always some scenes in, in shows that you just sort of, if you're on the inside, you know, they have NSA agents who are armed wandering around Detroit, like killing people. And there's so many things wrong with that. First of all, NSA people don't talk to other people because. They're all sort of, they're, they're very, very introverted. My old boss, George Tennant, used to say, at NSA, you can tell the extrovert from the introvert because the extrovert looks at your shoes when he talks. <laughs> <laughs> so the thought that they're wanting, wanting and, and you're right, that, that line between, between domestic and and foreign is, is one we just tend not to cross. Um, as a longtime follower of 24 and, and Homeland, um, I've always been impressed by how nimble and creative and ingenious the bad guys are on, on the show. But then um, I get very frustrated to see the, the government's response to terrorism with the, the TSA rules. And, you know, it's so stagnant as an institutional response. So I wonder <clears throat> if both of you have a, a view on that. <laughs> Did you say stagnant? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think he has a lot fewer restrictions and laws and rules, and, and uh, real life is harder than TV. I, I'm not going to defend everything. The government is this ginormous, sort of clumsy bureaucracy that is, I just read in the paper the other day that they were rather proud of reducing the number of people with clearances in the government from... 2.4 to 2.1 million people. And that's a lot of clearances. Um, and I, I do sometimes, maybe I'm defensive, because I was in government for a long time. But if you think about what's happened over the last 14 years, the number of attacks that have taken place on our soil, it's a pretty remarkable record. You know, not very many people. If I had spoken to a group like this on, on September 12th, 2001, and I told you only you know, a couple dozen Americans are going to die because of terrorism in, in the United States in the next 14 years. I think you would have thought I was a lunatic. And, and so that's whatever we've done that's clumsy, and I, I agree. Sometimes you wonder why I can't take my fingernail clippers, please. I've bought 17 of these. 
and I keep giving them to TSA, and I, someday I want them back, and I'm not going to hijack the plane with something that. But you know, it sort of works, I guess. Um, yes, I wondered what the distribution of your show is in the Middle East, what feedback you've had from that part of the world, and how it compares with the original show that was based, that was uh, developed there, an Israeli show, uh, how you differed it uh, from that. Uh uh, so the question about Homeland or 24 or both? I mean, it's Homeland in particular is very – it's distributed, very popular, very popular in the Middle East. Uh, um, it, it, it's, its inspiration was an Israeli show, which bears very little resemblance to uh, uh, ours. I mean, it's, the, what it was about was two soldiers who were kidnapped uh, in Syria and returned 17 years later. And it really was more of a Rip Van Winkle story about their reintegration into society and the soap opera that sort of occurred. There was no carry, there was no terrorism, there was no soul analog. They were two soldiers. So it really served as a very, very loose basis for our, our show. Um, it is very popular um, um, in, um, you know, I don't have, I, I know it's popular in, in, uh, in, uh, in Iran. I know, it, but it's beamed from, by Moby, uh, who is that, which is a, an Afghani, uh, uh, Saad Mosseini uh, has a you know Saad. I mean, um, you know, I, uh, uh, and uh, and it's popular in Jordan. It's uh, it, in Egypt. I mean, it's 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 aired legitimately and through uh, uh, outlets, and I think quite popular. In fact, uh, various countries have asked to do the format in their in their country to do original content. In Russia, it actually there's a, a homeland version, uh, which is interesting. I haven't seen it. It just started. Um, I tune into a lot of stations, and it appears that each has some sort of a political stance. So I was hoping to find out if Rand has done a study whereby I could get an objective opinion of what terrorism actually is. So maybe I haven't been listening carefully, but if you would care to summarize, I would love that. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that like everything else, you're not going to get one source of truth. So I have friends and former colleagues who are expert commentators on uh, Mike Leiter, who was a trustee at RAND, does NBC. Um, I think you can probably trust him. Juan Zarate, who used to work in the Bush White House, is a CBS commentator, and he's on CBS right now. A, a very old good friend of mine, Bill Mudd, does CNN, and he's good on terrorism. I think you know if you get if you get a flavor from all of them, and take into consideration that some come from the right, some come from the left, and you balance and you sort of, I think you're going to get a pretty good sense. My, from my perspective, I read the New York Times, the LA Times is pretty good. Um, I listen to NPR. I think that's maybe reveal something about my politics. I don't, I don't know. I went to Berkeley. You can take that into consideration. But, um, <laughs> but I, you know, I think it would be a mistake that, that uh, to listen to one channel alone and not sort of get a, a balanced view. Uh, we've got another question here in the front row. Hi, thank you, uh, Morgan Fairchild, and I am Chandler's mother on Friends. So, uh, <laughs> so thanks to the plugs. <laughs> so, um, I was just curious because we talk a lot about the Islamic. 
uh, terrorism. How much are you guys going to be dealing, or if at all, on film, or did you, uh, with domestic terrorism, with groups like Sovereign Citizen and some of the domestic terrorist groups, because we do continue to see some of those take action in this country? You know, it's interesting. In government, there is a very hard line, solid between um, foreign motivated terrorism and domestic. So in my organization, the National Counterterrorism Center, we had no purview over domestic terrorists. That was the FBI. So this the line between foreign and, and domestic really, I think, is, is quite seriously um, adhered to. Right, I do. Yeah, so yeah. Howard can blur <laughs> any line. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it'd be interesting. No, we, no, I think we've. Uh, I think again, I don't remember. I know we've uh, domestic terrorists have uh, have played into the show, and even the alliance between domestic terrorists and uh, uh, extremists of other stripes. So you know, so, Oklahoma I mean, City was a great example of something that was purely domestic. It had really no foreign element, no foreign motivating factor. Um, and, and you know, we've been pretty lucky since then. I think it, it's still a, a big worry, but it's less violent, less, um, there are fewer incidents. And the focus now is is really overseas. But is the Fort Hood incident a domestic, I mean, here you have a U.S. soldier who is, I mean, the, lo- the lines are crossed. <coughs> and I know, you know, uh, uh, Peter Singer has a you know a scenario in his book. If a drone operator in Nevada is killed, um, coming going mm-hmm. to his mother's house for dinner, is that a is that murder or an act of war? So I think the lines are starting to to cross. And, and be- you know, it, it's actually a, an important question in terms of legal authorities, right? Because my organization, if it's domestic terrorism, my organization wouldn't have had access to the information, we wouldn't have been part of the investigation at all. But if in Fort Hood, since it was fairly quickly discovered that Major Hassan had been in contact with Anwar al-Awlaki, and he was motivated by a foreign entity, then it became... Jurisdiction. It uh, came right. under our jurisdiction. So we could... Um, now, if, if a drone operator is killed by, um, you know, a a drug dealer or then it's not our job. But if he's killed by someone who says, who claims to be acting on behalf, behalf of the Islamic state, that's terrorism. And then right. we would become involved. So it's, it's not a simple, right. Right. I think we have, I'd like to ask if the um, ability to anticipate a terrorist action um, and to take counter action appropriately uh, changed uh, a sea state change between uh, before 11, uh, 9-11 and after. For example, I'm thinking before 9-11, we had the USS Cole incident uh, in the uh, Arabian Sea. We had uh, the Gulf of Yemen, rather. We had also the East Africa uh, bombings of the embassies. There were two of them bombed, and a lot of loss of life at all of those. After 9-11, you indicate that there's a, a very different mindset or attitude Within the agency and perhaps other parts of the government, could could you describe that transition a little bit for us? Well, I mean, I think as you can imagine, nine eleven changed the way we all sort of thought about 
threat and vulnerability and the need to both defend ourselves but also go on the offense. I mean, after, <clears throat> after the coal or after the embassy bombings, it took a very long time, and, and I think the response was, you know, a few tomahawks that went into uh, a few buildings in Sudan. And, um, but I, I think 9-11 just changed. It, it really changed the way we approach counterterrorism. It, it wasn't so much that the capabilities didn't exist before 9-11. It was that I think um, there would have been congressional debate and public debate over the wisdom of going on the offensive. And I think you, you hear that there were people in government who argued at the time, we need to be more aggressive. And there were people that said, you know, we're just going to make the threat worse if we do that. 9-11 changed that. Thank you. The last couple of questions seem to indicate uh, they touch on a dilemma that's been facing us for some time, and we seem to be skirting around it. We call this war on terrorism. When we have enemy combatants, we shoot them or we incarcerate them. We don't try them. How do we distinguish between an enemy combatant on the one hand and a criminal who deserves due process on the other hand? Is it geographic? Is it nationality? Uh, how do we do that? And uh, it's, this seems to be a problem that's been facing us and uh, has gotten very little, it's gotten a lot of attention, but no solutions. I wish Howard would I wish I could. <laughs> Take it away, Andy. Uh, well, with my pretend legal hat on, no, I, I think that, first of all, I would push back a little bit on the notion that in wartime, it's just a simple matter of shooting our enemy. I think, you know, we, we take POWs, you know, we, we try people for war crimes. It's not simply a matter of, you know, identify the enemy and you kill them. I think one of the problems we're facing now is that in, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, with that very different mindset that it brought, I don't, I'm not sure we thought very well down the road. We're going to capture all these guys. We're going to put them in a little prison in Guantanamo, and then what? They can't stay there forever. Maybe we thought they could, or that it would be someone else's problem. And we are a country of due process. And I think what we we knew that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Abu Zubaydah and the rest of them were bad guys. I mean, they were they had plotted against us. They had contributed to the murder of more than three thousand Americans. But what we hadn't done was collect the evidence that the FBI would ordinarily collect that would support judicial process. And now we're stuck with these really bad guys who we don't have the evidence to base a trial against. And uh, it's a, we've gotten ourselves in a bit of a pickle. Um, and it, each administration sort of says, here's, here's your pickle. And, you know, <laughs> I'm going to go build my library. And <laughs> oh wait, I forgot. We're taping this. Could you Oops. Howard, any last word? Thank That's you. It. That was the how do I top that? All I know right, what to get I know what to get off stage. It's the <laughs> um I I hope everyone can join me in thanking um, Howard and Andy for an absolutely fascinating discussion.
there was a lot of talk about fact versus fiction, um, but I do want to reiterate, I agree with Andy, yeah, diversify your news sources, but RAND is a very good one. And we do have a lot of people thinking about facts in our research, and that's one of our goals is to try to educate based on facts, not based on ideology. Um, so I hope everybody uh, does continue to stay engaged with RAND. I want to thank our Policy Circle members um, who are so supportive and important to our mission here. Thanks again, everyone. Good evening. Bye. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.